One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenikin. Let's start off the show by thanking our Patreon contributors from this past week. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. And this week we had Megan, Eva, Emily, Ellie, Karen, Kyle Matui, Stephanie, Amelia, and Caitlin. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Okay, so this week a movie is being released on Hulu called The United States versus Billie Holiday. And I have long wanted to do an episode on Billie Holiday, so this felt like the perfect opportunity to take a deep dive into her life. This will be a two-part episode because she had a wild life and a lot happened in that short life. I used multiple books for this, including Billie Holiday by Stuart Nicholson, Wishing on the Moon, The Life and Times of Billie Holiday by Donald Clark, her autobiography, Lady Sings the Blues, that she wrote, in quotes, with William Dafty. And I also watched the movie starring Diana Ross based on the autobiography that's also called Lady Sings the Blues. Did you see that movie? A long time ago. Yeah. I didn't finish it. (laughs) Because you were busy this week. Dude, I had so many books open at some point that I was literally losing my mind because each book, well, obviously her autobiography is its own unique piece. Yeah. And then one was just way more detailed, but then I found this other one that had some good things. So I just had them all open and I was honestly going crazy, but I think I got some good information. So yeah, I'll get started. In 1915, Sadie Fagan became pregnant at the age of 18. She was, an unwed, she was unwed, and her parents, who were devout Catholics, kicked her out of the home. The man who knocked her up was a musician named Clarence Halliday, who she met at the carnival. She eventually moved to Philadelphia, hoping to start a young family with Clarence, but he quickly abandoned her to pursue a career as a jazz banjo player and guitarist. Now, in her book, Lady Sings the Blues, Billie Holiday has a slightly different version, and this happens a lot in her book. It differs from sort of the historical <laughs> facts of things, and these guys use like census reports and all of this stuff, but I'll give you her version. She claims her mom had her at the age of 13 and that the couple got married three years later. The reason her dad left was that he went off to the went off to fight in the war where he gets exposed to poisonous gas, which ruined his promising trumpet career. So he switched over to guitar. Billy says if he was pursuing piano, he would have been shot in the hands. Such was the luck of Clarence Halliday. Regardless of the exact circumstances, Billy Holiday was born Eleonora Fagan on April 7th, 1915 in Philadelphia. Now, when Clarence skipped town, Sadie began traveling up north to work as a domestic. Eleonora stayed with her grandma and her mom's cousin, Ida. By the way, I always will keep trying to call her Aunt Ida. Oh. <laughs> Even though it's because she calls her cousin Ida in the book. I'm like, no, it's really Aunt con- Ida. It needs to be Aunt Ida. Aunt Ida had two kids, Henry and Elsie. Now, Ida and Billy did not get along because according to Billy, unlike most kids, she didn't lie. She just admitted things when she was busted, which enraged Ida. Another awful thing, she had to sleep in a bed with the other kids and Henry was a bedwetter. When Eleanor convinced Elsie to sleep on the floor so as not to get wet, she was beat for that too. Being clever was a sign of disrespect with cousin Ida. One person who did get young Eleanor was her great-grandmother, who was near 100, according to Billy. 
Eleonora would clean her chair with, uh, sorry, her cloth covering. She was chair ridden because she had dropsy, which is kind of like a edema, like swelling. So she was like ordered to sleep sitting up in this chair. Uh, and the grandmother, great grandmother would tell her stories about working on the plantation when she was a slave. Now, one night the grandmother begged Eleonora to get down on the, let her sleep on the floor. She wanted to lie flat. So they got down on the floor and Eleonora fell asleep with her great grandmother holding her only to wake up with her arms rigid around her. Her <gasps> grandmother had died during the nap. Oh. Obviously cousin Ida beat her for this too. Now Sadie eventually marries a man named Philip Gow and he they then moved back to West Baltimore, but the marriage ended in two years. According to Billy, he died, but the truth is he abandoned them also. This kind of stuff obviously has a huge effect on young Eleonora as her mom's relationships in general with men were really bad and she kind of did the thing, which I kind of did, where I was like, I'm never <laughs> going to let men treat me that way when you watch your mom kind of get treated like a fucking doormat. Now, when Eleanor begins attending school, she pisses off Cousin Ida once again by singing the dirty songs she learned on the playground, including blues, things that had my man this and my man that, which I love the idea of like a five-year-old singing that type of song. Blues was not respectable like that at that period, or for certain people like who were religious, they were like, this music is about fucking. But it was definitely a foreshadowing of things to come for Billy or Eleonora. Her first brush with the law was in fourth grade when she was busted for truancy by for playing hooky too much, just like me. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna say I got in trouble for singing dirty songs on the playground when I was little. Oh, really? Yes. And, I think we talked about this. Um, yeah. Somebody called my stepmom. They called my fucking house and they were like, "Was your child?" singing motherfucker titty sucker <laughs> on the playground. And I said, yes, I was. Yeah. I got in trouble for writing a, rewriting a poem about Johnny Appleseed <laughs> and making it dirty. <laughs> <laughs> that was like my first big thing I got in trouble for. Look, we all know what that Appleseed was. And I had was. a bitch aunt who turned me into my Nana. <gasps> like she made sure my Nana found out, even though it was very unnecessary. Right. But I was like the favored child, you know? I will never recover. <laughs> so young Eleonora was committed to something called the House of Good Shepherds for Colored Girls, which was financed by the Little Sister of the Poor. At the age of nine, she was much younger than the other girls who were there who were all 13 and over. Young Eleonora was introduced to much more streetwise ways and petty crime, as well as lesbianism, according to her childhood friend, Pony. <laughs> Great name. I love it. She said in an interview in 1971, it was just the way things were. Pony also described incidents where it was a little less than consensual. Older girls luring the younger ones in with candy before finding them in their bed later and fucking them as they cried. <gasps> I don't know exactly what happened there, but it doesn't sound good. Now, Eleonora also changed her name at this reform school. She called herself Madge, which I find to be like a very cool... <laughs> name change. Now, Billy speaks in her book of the wild punishments at this reform school, including bad girls having to wear a red dress for a day. So everyone knew that they did something bad, which is very Betty Davis and Jezebel. Mm -hmm. And since consumption was a thing that was happening at the time, she mentioned another punishment she received when that was going around the home. 
In her book, she writes, they wouldn't let me sleep in the dormitory with the other girls. Another girl had died and they had laid her out in the front room. For the punishment, they locked me in the room with her for the night. Uh, I don't really remember. All I knew was I couldn't stand dead people ever since my great-grandmother had died holding me in her arms. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't stand it. I screamed and banged at the door. I kept the whole joint from sleeping. I hammered on the door until my hands were bloody. So she had to stay in a room with a dead girl all night, which sounds really That's fucking... horrific. Yes. Now, she is eventually baptized into the Catholic Church at this school, and she was like overjoyed that day. It was like this big ceremony. Uh Eleanor is eventually Eleanor is eventually released back to her mother's custody in October of 1925. Sadie had opened a restaurant by that point called the East Side Grill, and the mother and daughter's um, daughter worked long hours. Now, this is just a restaurant that they ran out of the house. Sadie would cook pig's feet, red beans, and rice and serve it with bootleg whiskey, but it was quite successful. She was also working as a domestic worker for rich people still, so her and Eleanor had gas and electric for the first time. They were the first family in the neighborhood to have it, and it was a dream of Sadie's after working for so many rich people and seeing how great it was. So she really scrimped and saved for this luxury. Billy claimed in her book that everyone was fucking jealous. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a very Baltimore thing to say. Yes. Eleanor drops out of school at age 11. On December 24th, 1926, Sadie comes home to discover a neighbor attempting to rape Eleanor. She successfully fights him off and later he's arrested. Billy describes this scene in her book. The man she called Mr. Dick (laughs) took her to a home she didn't know to wait for her mother. Now, I'm just laughing at Mr. Dick because that wasn't really his name, but that's what Billy calls him, (laughs) Mr. Dick. Okay, so here's her account in the book. So this man takes her to a home and says, your mother's going to pick you up here later. It's not her home. So she's sitting around. She's waiting for her mom to call. She asks, you know, is my mom going to be along soon? I think they told me she had called them on the phone and said she would be late. It got later and later. I began to get sleepy. Mr. Dick saw me dozing and took me into the back bedroom to lie down. I was almost asleep when Mr. Dick crawled up on me and started trying to do what my cousin Henry used to try. I started to kick and scream like crazy. When I did, the woman of the house came in and tried to hold my head and arms down on the bed so he could get at me. I gave both of them a hard time kicking and scratching and screaming. Suddenly, when I was catching my breath, I heard some hollering and shouting. The next thing I knew, my mom and a policeman broke the door down. Now, I'll never forget that night. Even if you're a whore, you don't want to be raped. A bitch can turn 2,500 tricks a day, and she still don't want nobody to rape her. It's the worst thing that can happen to a woman, and here it was happening to me when I was 10. (gasps) I couldn't figure out how my mother had managed to find out how they had taken me or where they had taken me. But when she had come home, one of Mr. Dick's girlfriends, a jealous hustler, was waiting on the porch. She warned mom to keep me away from her man. Mom tried to brush her off, telling her I was just a kid and quit being jealous and silly. Just a kid, this hustler said, laughing. She ran off with my man. She with him right now. And if you don't believe me, I'll tell you where you can find them. So his jealous girlfriend told the mom... That Bill, like Eleonora was with this guy. She's, she's ten. Yeah, she's like a she's kid. She's ten. Yeah. So that's how the mom found it. Now, when the cops come and they all go to the police precinct, of course they treat Eleonora and Sadie as if they're the fucking criminals. Oh my uh, God. So he's like in his 40s, this guy, Mr. Dick. She's 10, obviously. Um, she's very well, you know, she's very developed. So she does look older than her age. That's not excusing Mr. Dick at all. I'm just explaining. They use that against her. 
Um, and they basically put her in jail <gasps> because uh, she's a now she's in protective custody as a state witness to this rape case. She's eventually released in 1927 when she's almost 12. Now, details of this are sketchy and people question the veracity of this happened because there is only record of her being at the Good Shepherd home for the truancy charge, which happened a few years earlier. But obviously, it's not out of question that something like this can happen. Fuck Mr. Dick. Either way, uh, it seems perfectly likely that something like this happened to me, uh, even if the records aren't lining up. Now, around, around this time, Sadie is rejected by another man named Wee Wee. Oh, <laughs> Sadie. You never want to get rejected by a Wee Wee. Seriously. Her mother's constant rejection, once again, this desperation for men, just like continued to humiliate Eleonora. While Sadie was desperate for respectability, Eleonora would choose to reject the notion of respectability, seeing it as hypocritical. She vowed she would never give men money the way... Um, that her mom always gave them money and she would roll them for every dollar they had. She also said that she would never ask or need for anything, including permission to live her life how she wanted. So these are things she established at a very young age. Now, she didn't really always live up to them, but she had those goals in mind. By the end of 1928, Billy's, um, I'm sorry, Eleanor's mother moved to Harlem, New York, leaving her with a woman named Martha Miller. Now, she's basically on her own in Baltimore, and she found some other ro- um, role models. These were women who hustled, including a woman named Alice Dean, who was a local brothel owner. So Eleanor begins running errands for this woman at the brothel. brothel. She also has a side hustle, scrubbing marble steps of the neighborhood homes. This was like a thing a lot of the kids in the neighborhood do, did. They would scrub these white steps up to these like brick townhomes that Baltimore kind of has. Uh, they charged five cents and Billy came up with like an even bigger hustle. She's like, she bought her own supplies, including Bon Ami soap, <laughs> which they still sell. Yeah. You can get a can of that. It's the same packaging. Yeah. It's cool as hell. Uh, and she started charging 15 cents, which outraged some of the women, but she uh, said, oh, I'll throw in the bathroom and kitchen floors as well with no intention of cleaning them. In her book, she said, all these bitches were lazy and I knew it. <laughs> and that's where I had them. They didn't care, care how filthy their damn house was inside as long as those white steps were clean. Sometimes I'd bring home as much as 90 cents a day. I even made as high as $2.10 one day. So she just like scammed them uh, saying she'd give them that extra cleaning but never fucking do it. Amazing. Now... She also started running tricks, meaning she would take white guys for all their money when they came to her neighborhood looking to get off. (laughs) (laughs) According to Pony, these men thought they would pay these girls a few pennies, but most of the time they would take their pants off and then the girls would take their wallets out and take all the money out. (laughs) So they made a lot of money this way, which is obviously preferable to scrubbing the staircases in front of these wealthy homes. These scans, as I mentioned before, were done at the home of this woman, Alice Dean, and she was like it. Like She had this beautiful home and beautiful clothes. She also had a record player, and that's where she, Eleonora, would first hear the music of Bessie Smith and later Louis Armstrong, both of who had huge influences on her. In particular, um, Billie Holiday would later cite West End Blues as an influence of hers, um, specifically the scat section duet where they sang with the clarinet as um, her favorite part. She began singing around this time. I think in the movie, you see her, they have a scene where she's singing with a phonograph. 
Yeah, so she starts singing in these like kind of little small singing competition, amateur type deals. She also starts smoking reefer and drinking uh, whiskey. Um, she starts getting wasted and spicy. Pony recalls her on the streets late at night when she was wasted, screaming things like, you cocksucker, you motherfucker, kiss my ass, suck my ass to all the men who would like hit on her. (laughs) So she's getting into a lot of trouble. Her mom, Sadie, finally sent for her to live in New York. She left Baltimore in a white wall dress and a red shiny belt ready to take on New York. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. After Eleonora arrives, Sadie gets her a job working as a maid, and it's not a good fit for Eleonora. So Sadie hooks her up with a woman she knew who required a little quid pro quo for rent. Their landlady was a sharply dressed woman named Florence William who was running a brothel out of her 140th Street apartment. Sadie was working for her to supplement her domestic income, and within a matter of days of arriving in New York, Um, Billy, I'm sorry, Eleanor, not yet 14, began working for her as well. Now, a lot of people in things I read online describe this as her being a victim of sexual trafficking. Uh, I'll read you Billy's account um, of what happened, and she doesn't seem too upset by it. (laughs) So uh, just stating that here. So according to a woman who knew them at the time, she said of the thing, because there is some question, like, did this really happen? She said, the idea of Eleanor, Eleanor doing any work was ludicrous. But listen, darling, as far as I know about Eleanor doing any prostitution, I don't know nothing about that. But better to sell it than to give it away. That's what I always say. <laughs> Just like, I don't know. <laughs> I guess if you're legally of age. Um, now, according to Billy's book, when she was 
offered to become what she calls in the book a $20 call girl. She jumped at the chance. She dreamed of having a fancy phone you took to bed with you, not one that was on the wall. I totally understand this fantasy, like having that thing where you're like, hello, and you're like lounging in your bed and it's like white and kind of Victorian. I know what you're talking about. I wanted this phone. For some reason, I wanted this phone when I was very young. It was the French phone. Yes, it's French provincial or something. No, it's called a French phone. Oh, it is? Yes. And it's that uh, very dramatic looking ivory colored phone with the with the receiver that kind of curls under. Yes. And it has the gold or brass, whatever. Yes. Trim. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted that too. I also wanted the one where you hold it up to your ear and speak into the... Oh, yeah, with a separate little microphone. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, And then when she got her first paycheck, she bought her first silk dress and black patent leather pumps. Now, her regular client were two white cats, but Billy said she was not cut out for the life of a call girl. In addition to the Mr. Dick rape, she said she was also sexually assaulted by a trumpet player as a child, which left her bloodied on the living room floor. She said she took her bloody clothes and threw them at her mother in disgust, saying, so this is what you and Papa were doing when I slept at the foot of your bed in a cedar chest? So she was not into sex. I mean, she was also 14 years old. This is so sad. This I know. Is, this is like her first understanding of sex. Like this is her first exposure to it is being raped. Is being raped. And I don't think it was even anything out of the norm like for her. Do you know what I mean? That's what like, I'm saying. Yeah. This is her first exposure to it. This is what she thinks sex is. I, I just feel like it makes complete sense that she felt this way. I think I keep forgetting when I was reading this is like, she's only 16 here. Like she's so young. Yeah. She also claimed to prefer white customers, especially after having a black male client who paid extra, but was so big she couldn't walk for days. But there was another reason she preferred white customers. She said with them, it was a cinch when they came to see it, it was wham bang. And they gave me the money and they were gone. I made all the loot I needed. But with, um, when she had black men, they were always like, is it good for you? Don't you want to be my whole lady <laughs> so they actually wanted to please her a bit like sexually like and I, she's like Sir. she's like get just give me my money and go back to your fucking wife like i just thought that was a really funny thing because they were trying to make her the girlfriend or something like that now she actually turns down an influential black customer at some point and he has her arrested and busted he like busts the brothel when she refuses to take him as a client she gets sent to a place called Welfare Island for Wayward Women, where she spends some time. And there's a lot of stories in the books. I can't get into them all. But it's, you know, a typical prison situation for young girls and women. Not so it's good. just not good. She leaves that, she finally gets out and she leaves wearing that silk dress and patent leather pumps, ready to take on New York City once she, again. So I love her leaving. <laughs> She's like, bye, bitches. Bye, bitches. Yeah, see you on the other side. I think some other of her coworkers got released with her, so I'm sure it was quite a scene. So she decides she no longer wants to be a call girl, and she is not going to be a maid. What Eleanor really wanted to do was sing, and she began just doing that in Harlem's thriving nightclub scene. She takes the professional pseudonym now, uh, our, our professional name, Billy Holiday. So that is from Billy Dove, an actress she liked, and her father's last name, which was Holiday. And she eventually switches that to Holiday. 
Now, a very famous story in her autobiography is how she got her first singing gig at a place called Pods and Jerry's, which is in Harlem. She kind of acts like she had never been singing up to this point, but that just is not true. Like, so here, here is her story. She is desperate for a job at this point. She decides that she's going to try to get hired as a dancer in one of these nightclubs, even though she has zero um, dance experience. And she only knows two steps, the time step and the crossover. So I don't know what that is, but that that's sounds like... That's tap. Yeah, that sounds like something I could do, like a basic shuffle thing, right? Like uh, The time step... It's like a. It's I'll like a. It's I'll a filler. Show. It's not like a special move, right? Well, when you all do it in a row, it gets a big applause. Yeah, from the crowd. <laughs> I'll show you later. Okay, so he, the guy named Jerry, she goes over there to the piano player. He tells her to dance. She starts, and obviously, it's just pitiful because this is not a professional dancer. She's just doing a few moves. At some point, he says to her, girl, can you sing? And she's like, sure, who can't sing? So according to her, I asked them to play Traveling All Alone. That came closer than anything to the way I felt, and some part of it must have come across. The whole joint quieted down as if someone had dropped a pin. It would have sounded like a bomb. When I finished, everybody in the joint was crying in their beer. I picked up 38 bucks off the floor. When I left the joint that night, I split with the piano player and took home $57. She went out and bought her mom a whole chicken and some baked beans, and that's where she started singing. Now, Obviously, I mentioned she had been audition, uh, doing competitions and singing competitions. So she had been singing and wanted to be a singer. This is not her Lana Turner story. Like these stories are always a little fabricated, but who the hell cares? She can have her little story. She never sang and now she's a singer. She quickly begins developing her style and persona. And she also picks up her famous gardenia at, at some point. You know, she famously wears a gardenia in her hair. How this happened. I don't know how accurate this is. Apparently, she scorched her hair with an, a curling iron. Like back in those days, you literally like put them on the fucking fire, yeah, so they could be really hot. Um, in the club that she was working, a girl was selling gardenias to guests. She bought a few and put them to cover up the holes in her hair. Like she literally burned her hair off of her head. So she put the gardenias on. It was a success. People loved it. And that became her trademark or one of them. I think this is why when I was a kid, gardenias were my favorite flower. Oh, really? Because I saw pictures of Billie Holiday and I thought that is the most glamorous thing. They're so pretty and they smell so great. And I do love gardenias. Well, the funny thing I read... I saw something about gardenias. I started, of course, fucking reading about gardenias. They were really out of fashion at this time because they had become, people considered them old fashioned. So she kind of brought them back into being a fashionable flower. I mean, it's weird to think flowers go in and out of fashion, but I think that's true. Like gladiolas and like there's certain flowers people just don't think are cool anymore or they become associated with something. I love gardenias. They're so great. They smell so good. I wore them in my hair to junior prom. Oh, really? I did. I love them. They're beautiful. So at some point, she teams up with a saxophone player named Kenneth Holland, and they're a team from 1929 to 1931. They play at all the clubs in Brooklyn and uh, Harlem. In 1932, she replaces a singer named Monette Moore at Covans, which is a big Harlem club, Uh, And it's there that a really rich white guy who loved jazz saw her. He was a writer for a uh, UK-based music magazine called Melody Maker. 
And he eventually becomes a huge jazz producer and other types of music. He Like if you look at his list of people he worked with and discovered, it's like a who's who of jazz. But there's also like Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, because he goes forever. Now, his name is John Hammond. He actually came to the club to see Monette Moore sing. He liked Monette. And he happened to hear Billie Holiday there in early 1933, unexpectedly. He immediately realized that he was listening to something special, uh, later saying she almost changed his musical taste and his musical life. Quote, the way she sang around a melody, her uncanny harmonic sense and her sense of lyric content were almost unbelievable in a girl of 17. He was very impressed by her and immediately like tried to like, he thought she was a jazz genius already at that age. Um, he compared her to Louis Armstrong um, and he had a ton of fucking connections because he was very influential and he was rich. So he knew Hollywood celebrities. Um, he brought people to see her like Benny Goodman and he brought uh, Elsa Lanchester and our old pal, Charles Lawton came to see Billy Holiday. Oh. <laughs> now, they are rumored to have had an affair around this time. Stop it. Charles Lawton? Yes. It was taken... She wrote about it in her autobiography, but it was taken out due to lawsuit threats. So... What? And I looked everywhere for stories about what happened between those so, two. So that wasn't... They threatened to take that out, but not the story about how Charles Lawton was into shit sandwiches. Well, he was dead by the time that okay. story came out. <laughs> I'm just saying. Was that that was was that on our regular show or a p- that, Patreon? That was a Patreon okay. episode about Charles Lawton. But that's talked about in the Scotty Bowers book. Yes. Correct? We okay. briefly touched on it again there. And then who was the other shit person? Tyrone Power? I okay. think so. Okay. Uh sorry. No, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> So yeah, I looked everywhere. I could not find anything about those two, but I believe it. Uh, so Hammond is—he's kind of widely considered the person who discovered Billie Holiday. I mean, obviously she would have gotten somewhere without him, but he really fast tracked her and like gave her every connection he had. Um, he considered her also to be the first singer who was actually a jazz musician rather than a jazz musician who also sings. She was getting big notices in Europe where black performers were more accepted than they were in America at the time. And jazz was also very popular there. He, as I mentioned before, wrote for a UK magazine. So he really wrote about her in Europe. He also arranged for her to make her recording debut at the age of 18 with Benny Goodman. She recorded uh, two songs with him and both of them were like quite popular. Um, another frequent accompanist that she had and a lifelong platonic like love affair she had with a, it was with a saxophone player named Lester Young, who is actually my favorite saxophone player. He he actually became a boarder at her mother's house in 1934 because they were so close. Um, they had an incredible rapport. I love all of their recordings together. I meant to find a clip that I love of those two playing. Maybe I'll post it on Instagram. I just love them together because he plays saxophone like how she sings mm-hmm. and they just match perfectly. He said uh, later in life, I think you can hear that on some of the old records, you know, sometimes I'd sit down and listen to him myself and it sounds like two of the same voices or the same mind or something like that. He's the one who nicknamed her Lady Day and she nicknamed him Prez. And that was the beginning, as I mentioned, of this lifelong platonic love affair. He also nicknamed her mom, Sadie, the Duchess. So she starts going by the Duchess. 
1934, she had her Apollo debut, which did not make the splash that is sometimes reported. In fact, she was so shy that she was pushed out onto stage by a performer named Pigmeat. <laughs> Pigmeat? Yeah. I, like I saw it. the poster for it. Uh, I think he might have been some kind of comedic type performer. I'm not 100% sure. But she kept going to the bathroom and she went to the bathroom like 18 times. And he finally was like, no, you don't have to go to the bathroom anymore. She was so nervous. Yeah. I mean, like I said, she's like 18 still. Like she's so. That's a big deal. And you know what I was reading? This, the one book, the really long one that's like 600 pages, they go into a lot of the music kind of stuff like I think you've had this experience before when they're really into the music nitty gritty and they said that like the Apollo is just infamously even if you're great you need to be extra great like it's really hard to get to win over that audience did you used to watch Showtime at the Apollo uh, yeah <laughs> Showtime at the Apollo was like one of my favorite shows that was like after Saturday Night yes, Live right? it was yes. always okay. after SNL and I was obsessed with Showtime at the Apollo that audience was ruthless. Well, I think it was ruthless, but then by the time we were watching it, they knew they were like, we're ruthless. It Do you was, know what I mean? It was like extra ruthless. The audience was part of the show. Oh, totally. Because sometimes I didn't even know who the fuck was on it. You know, it was just like uh, the shout audience. Out, shout out to other uh, fans of Showtime at the Apollo. My One of my favorite performers, if anyone knows who I'm talking about, was this guy Change. And he did... <laughs> The Flowetry song, Say Yes. Oh. Dude, he was <laughs> so excellent. I get chills thinking about we it. Should, we should see it do a Where Are They Now? <laughs> we should. We should. Uh, so he, John Hammond continues pushing Billy. He lands her a role in a Duke Ellington short, like almost like a music video. But she wasn't taking off like everyone felt like she should. Most chalked it up to her personality more than to her, her talent. She was incredibly difficult to work with because she was very specific about what she wanted to sing and what she didn't want to sing. Now, if you know anything about her, she has a very specific sound. She can't sing everything. Like she has her thing that she does. She's not like an Ella Fitzgerald who could just fucking blow everything out of the water. So I can see like that being like a problem for people, especially in a big band era where they just want you to sing every fucking song that's comes up. Do you know what I mean? Like, but, but the songs that she does sing are incredible. Exactly. That's not my point. My point no, is, I know. that's just, my point is she wasn't really hireable, like as a do everything singer. Right. Do you know what I mean? She was an artist. Like, right. and I think, uh, especially for female singers at that time, they just wanted you to come in and do the songs they wanted you to do. They didn't consider these women to be artists. I think at that point, especially her, uh, she was also like, I mentioned very into weed and, and she liked alcohol too. So she would show up you know, fucking high, reeking of weed and stuff like that as well. Now, obviously, men were doing the same thing and getting away with it. So there's definitely that double standard happening. It was also around this time that she had a fateful account encounter at one of the clubs. She saw a sex worker trying to steal a, a wealthy hot guy's wallet. How hot is this guy? In the movie, he's played by Billy D. Williams. <laughs> So he's really hot. Yeah. Now she stops this woman from stealing the wallet and the woman's like, I'll split it with you. Like, don't worry, girl. And Billy's like, no, that's my old man. Now he wasn't. They didn't even know each other really, but it ends up being a prophetic statement. We won't, they won't see each other for years, but he'll come back later on in our story. Story. His name is Lewis McKay. Now making matters worse for Billy, who was also feeling frustrated by her career, career was that 
a young singer with a popular Chick Webb orchestra was getting a lot of attention. That singer was Ella Fitzgerald, who I mentioned earlier, and was sort of the opposite of Billy. Um, she really specialized in selling these infectious swing numbers, which was very popular at the time. And as we mentioned, Billy did these more you know, lower tempo or sometimes moody torch songs. It was just a different vibe. But dancing was so big then, they really wanted these big swing numbers. Billy was bitter about it and finally went to check Ella at Ella out at the Savoy. She sat there grumpily in a big coat before storming out saying, that bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Now they do eventually become friends. And this is definitely not, it's just Billy being frustrated because Ella Fitzgerald is widely considered to be like the nicest person ever. Like this is not someone you battle with. So she also started seeing saxophonist Ben Webster at the time, who was really hot, but had a temper when he drank. And when he drank, he would beat her up. Now, he would leave her face bruised and beaten, and once it was so bad that when he came to pick her up at Sadie's, she proceeded to beat him with an umbrella for beating her daughter. Oh, my God. Uh, and it's that, I was shocked when I heard this because I know Ben Webster, but I didn't know he had this uh, violent temper and beat up Billie Holiday. So it was kind of like shocking. I was like, oh, my God. Like, That's horrible. How fucking dare you? Now, in 1935... She gets signed to Brunswick Records by John Hammond, and they he kind of pairs her up with pianist Teddy Wilson, and this is a, a little partnership that really sets her off on this great path. This is a great partnership. They create some swing-style stuff for this jukebox trade that's happening, and they kind of have a little bit of leeway with this Brunswick Records because they're really struggling financially. So they're kind of like, okay, let's try anything. So they're doing these more um, swing style songs, but she's doing a lot of improvisation and getting these melodies to fit the emotion she wants to put into their song. Their first collaboration is a song called What a Little Moonlight Can Do. And that has been deemed sort of her claim to fame, like her first big hit like a record a record wise. These sessions also um, produce a few other hits um, and then just gets her some other recording gigs at a, another place called Vocation Records where she has some more sessions with Hammond and Teddy Wilson. Um, they play a little bit more jazz tunes this time. So she's kind of getting getting her style into these recordings at this point. And that definitely makes her happy. It also helps that they're doing pretty well. One of the records she makes, I Cried For You, sells 15,000 copies, which was a giant hit for Brunswick because most of theirs were selling like three to 4,000 uh, copies at the time. Now, in January of 1937, her old pal Lester Young is now with one of Hammond's latest discoveries, the Count Basie Band. So they at this time are not the Count Basie band that we all know. They're just out of Kansas City. They're not very well known on the scene yet. They're kind of just starting out. They're in New York City for an engagement. And Lester brings a few guys from that band down to record with Billy. And that's an electric session that goes incredibly. She gets hired by the Count Basie man shortly after. And she joins Lester Young and a guy named Buck Clayton, and they become the unholy three of the orchestra. (laughs) They're the ones who are always out drinking, partying, gambling. They spend all their money, and then they try to get it back by playing craps. That doesn't go well. (laughs) The lead singer of this band is a guy named Jimmy Rushing. He's kind of uptight, and he fucking hates these bitches. <laughs> they try to take his money. He won't. I mean, it's just like a mess. They're just like these little shits, but it does sound really fucking fun. So 
<laughs> now they make their debut at the Apollo with Billy, and this time she steals the show. Like she finally has her big Apollo moment, which I feel like is a thing with artists. Like they'll be famous, but it's like until they get that Apollo moment, like that's truly success for them. Another Apollo moment. Uh-oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, uh, like, okay, do you remember? Have you seen that clip of Lauren Hill? At the oh, Apollo? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like very famous. Yes, I've seen that. They're booing her at first. But then she, like, because she's so nervous. Yes. But then she starts killing it. And by the end, everyone's on their feet. Yes. It's like, it, you can win them back. Like, yes. Yeah. Oh, and it's I, like, but it's like, because it's it. like almost like the guts of it, you know? It's like, they want you to have the guts to keep going or yeah. something. Yeah. Now, she really blossoms as a performer during this period because she's playing so regularly with a big band. She's a little bit out of her comfort zone. Like like I said before, she has to sing things that aren't always 100% what she wants. So she gets a lot of confidence as a performer. Um, she records several more iconic recordings with Lester Young during this this period. And she also really develops her persona of a, of a woman unlucky in love. That becomes kind of her thing. Now, she finds herself... Um, once again, in a direct competition with Ella Fitzgerald, uh, there's a competition between the Chick Webb Band and the, the Count Basie Band. This happens on January 16th, 1938, and that's the same day that Benny, Gut, um, sorry, Benny Goodman performs this legendary Carnegie Hall jazz concert. All of these guys are at this concert. They all leave the concert and go to the Savoy Ballroom and have like a big band off. So these two like biggest big bands in the world have this thing. Ella Fitzgerald singing for Chick Webb, Billie Holiday for Count Basie. Uh, so basically one huge music magazine declares Webb and Fitzgerald the winners. Dead Downbeat declares Holiday and Basie the winners. Fitzgerald wins like some audience poll like by a huge margin. She's very popular. I wouldn't want to go up against Ella Fitzgerald. No. Uh, so it was a huge, that was like a day where people were like, like people were like, whoa, January 16th, all this jazz shit went down. Now by February, 1938, Holiday is no longer singing for Basie. A lot of reasons have been given for this, including Jimmy Rushing, the singer I mentioned who thought her unpre- unprofessional. Uh, there was people saying she didn't get enough money. I mean, a lot of it was like, even in her book, she's kind of like, it's a lot of fucking work to be touring nonstop and not getting that much money because yeah. I'm just a one of whatever, 15 people or however many people it is. Um, so yeah, but right after she's fired, she gets hired by Artie Shaw to play, to be the singer in his band. Now we've discussed Artie Shaw. He fucked a lot of hot actresses <laughs> coming up. He's just starting out still during this period, but he gets around yeah. uh, later in life. He, he goes with Ava Gardner, Lana Turner. I mean, this guy gets it. This is the first time a black woman has worked with a white orchestra and that is a very rare arrangement at that time. It's also the first time a black female singer is em- is employed in a full-time touring band that goes throughout the segregated U.S. South with a white band leader. Uh, a lot of shit goes down in this period with Artie Shaw. So I'm going to hit on a few of the things, but as I said, these books go into great detail in a lot of this stuff. Now, Shaw... Billy gives Shaw a lot of credit. She says he always stood up for her. Um, he, um, she describes an incident in her book where she was not permitted to sit on the bandstand with the other white per, uh, performers and instrumentalists. And he said that she, he's like, I want you on the bandstand like everyone else and made sure that she sat up there. 
Um, she would be heckled by members of the audience, especially obviously in the South. A man in Kentucky called her racial slur and requested that she sing another song, like yelled out to her in the audience. She actually lost her temper and Artie Shaw had to calm her down just because he didn't want her to get fucking killed, basically. Right? Like yeah. he protected her. Um, he eventually has to hire a white woman to sort of take the pressure off of Billy. So they would take turns doing the numbers. And like in some uh, venues, he would use her instead of Billy, like just because it wasn't safe. Um, she talked about in her book, I thought the story was really funny. She said, I'll never forget the night we were booked at this fancy boys' school in New England. She was real happy because she was sure I was going to have to sit in the bus all night again because I was too black and sexy for those young boys. <laughs> but when the time came to open, the head man of the school came out and explained that it wasn't me. They just didn't want any female singers at all. So the two of us had to sit on the bus together all night and listen to Listen as the band played our songs. Did I razz her? You see, honey, I said, you're so fine and grand. You may be white, but you're no better than me. They won't have either of us here because we're both women. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I just picture that woman sitting there (laughs) pouting. (laughs) Can you imagine Billie Holiday like going off on your ass? Um, So in May of 1938, Shaw, they finally win a battle of the bands with Tommy Dorsey. Um, and the audience favors Holiday once. So she finally gets the popular vote. Um, Shaw admires Holiday's singing, obviously. And he also credit, you know, commented on her remarkable ear, her remarkable sense of time. But her time with the band was ending uh, shortly. In November of 1938, she was asked to use the service elevator at the Lincoln Hotel instead of the passenger elevator because white patrons of the hotel had complained. And this was the last straw for her. Now I'm going to read something from her book because I find it to be very interesting. And I'll just cut out the words she uses when they come up. But I really liked this passage. So according to her, finally, when they cut me off the air completely, I said to hell with it. I just fired myself. I told Artie he should have told me when the big wheels cracked down on him. Down south, I can dig this kind of stuff, but I can't take it in New York. The sheriff in Kentucky was at least honest. A real good cracker says, I don't like them, period. Or as they say in the South, dot. Some just say, I don't want to socialize with you. They don't tell you that behind your back. They tell it right to your face and you know it. A cracker just wants you to clean up his house or take care of their kids and get the hell out. Even when they insult you, they do it to your face. That's the only way they can let you know they're superior to you. They might die and leave you all their money, but somewhere in the fine print in that will, they're going to let you know that you were a good racial slur, that you're still their racial slur. The sheriff in Kentucky called me that to my face. The big deal hotels, agencies, and networks in New York, they were the ones giving me a fast shove behind my back. And I just thought that is like such a good, (laughs) it's like people are always like, oh, that's the South. It's like, no, it was in the North, but they were hiding it more and doing it more behind the scenes. And it's like, she just saw through all of that bullshit and it it hurt her more when it was happening in New York where it was not supposed to be happening. Like It it was everywhere. And it's like, you all want to see me fucking sing. But you don't want to associate with me at the bar or it was like kind of reminded me of the Dorothy Dandridge stuff where they like drain the pool just in case she dared to stick her fucking foot in it. Like, I mean, and we talked about this in our Nat King Cole episode and we talked about it when we briefly uh, talked a little bit about Sammy Davis Jr. It's like you want to see black, you want black performers to entertain you. Yeah. But 
how dare they stay at the same hotel. No, it's crazy. Now, she said about this incident weeks later, I was never allowed to visit the bar or the dining room as other members of the band. I was made to leave and enter through the kitchen. And they even got her... Like, this is how it kind of... She realized what had happened. The hotel made this big production about getting her her own suite. So it was like this gorgeous suite. But the reality is they just wanted her to stay up there and not congregate down with the guests. So the whole thing was just this ruse. Um, So... Around the same time, her father dies. Now, they weren't particularly close, but obviously they had this connection. <laughs> this sounds like a doozy of a funeral. The first thing that happens is the mom, Sadie, goes to the funeral and kneels in front of the coffin for over four hours, like holding court as if it's not her husband, but this was the love of her life, apparently. So she holds, they literally have to drag her out in this dramatic fashion. While she's like kneeling down, the doors to the like whatever viewing room open and his mistress and their two illegitimate kids walk in real dramatically and no one knew that he had this thing. So the, the it seemed like a real like dynasty like level funeral where all these reveals were happening (laughs) like i just picture the doors opening and this mistress walks in (laughs) that's drama yeah it was very dramatic so billy did what she always did she sang basically while her father was dead in this room waiting to be buried i'm not quite sure what it is like a viewing or a wake or whatever now, in her book, she said, while he was laid out, I kept singing at the Uptown house. The second night, an old bitch waltzed into the club, heard me and said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself singing that like that while your pops lying there in the funeral parlor. Until then, I had been too broken up to talk to anybody about it. But this bitch was too much for me. I let go and slapped her across the face as hard as I could. I know it. I know it. She answered back. You'll never turn out to be anything. You're just cheap. This hurt so much. I didn't say a damn thing. I just walked away. If I hadn't been sure she was long since dead I would have sworn this bitch was my cousin Ida (laughs) she had her evil sound her evil ways and her evil evil mind by the end of 1930s by the end of the 1930s she was one of the most successful jazz singers working and now she was unbridled by her big bands she was a free agent ready to do her thing exactly how she wanted and John Hammond was still there for her. He got her a gig at a new jazz club that was opening in the village called Cafe Society. Now, their relationship was strained, and she would make her last recording under his super- supervision in January of 1939, which would be another banger. But he did get her this big gig at the Cafe Society, which would start this new chapter of her career. Now, Billy's run at Cafe Society was pretty much an instant smash. It allowed her to further hone her style, and it really gave her a confidence when it came to choosing material that she knew fit her to a T. It was during this run that she was introduced to a song called Strange Fruit. Now, this song is based on a poem about lynching that was written by a man named Abel Mirapol, a Jewish schoolteacher from the Bronx. He set the poem to music, and he began performing it at teachers' union meetings. It was eventually heard by Barney Josephson, who was the owner of Cafe Society, uh, and he introduced it to Holiday. Now, I want to also stress that this club is one of the first integrated nightclubs, but it was basically like what we mentioned before, like a lot of wealthy white people going to see these black performers. But he did try to make it more integrated where they weren't having these experiences that Billy had at the hotel earlier. She performed at the club all throughout 1939. uh, And she started integrating this song into her set. She was really 
nervous about bringing this song onto the stage. She felt there might be retaliation to her, to her, you know, to her if she sang it. She later said that the imagery of the song reminded her of her father's death. Um, she, in her opinion, like part of the reason he died was that he was in the South and he wasn't getting treated properly because of his race. So um, he died of, I think, pneumonia. So it was basically like, in her opinion, he might have survived if he had been treated properly. And obviously that's something that still happens today. Mm -hmm. So she had like a real emotional connection to the song. Um, Her performance of Strange Fruit at Cafe Society was also uniquely presented. She had waiters silence the crowd when the song began. During the song's long introduction, the lights were dimmed and all movement in the club would cease. As she began singing, only a small spotlight illuminated her face. On the final note, all lights went out and when they came back on, she would be off stage. So she really wanted to present that song without any fanfare, just have people listen to it and then end with them without applause really like for her but more you know a sort of thoughtful uh presentation of the song which i think seems very powerful um holiday holiday wanted to record the song obviously because it did become the staple of her set there and obviously uh people were talking about it i mean it was like definitely a a unique (laughs) dark song to be performed on stage and, and and made people uncomfortable, like right. rightly so. So eventually, um, Commodore Records agreed to record "Strange Fruit," and um, it remains something that was in her repertoire for twenty years. She recorded it again for Verve Records, um, but the controversial song did not get radio airplay. Obviously, but the album was very successful. It had a um, a B side called "Fine and Mellow" that was also a hit. Um, so it did become her biggest selling record, I think, ever. Uh, and it was uh, the equivalent of a top 20 hit in the 1930s, or I guess that was the late 30s, yeah. So her popularity increased after Strange Fruit. She got mentions in like more mainstream publications like Time Magazine. According to her, I opened Cafe Society as an un- unknown. I left two years later as a star. I needed the prestige and publicity, all right, but you can't pay rent with it. So she soon was demanding more money from her manager at the time, a man named Joe Glazer. So she definitely was like, okay, now I need some fucking money because she wasn't, she still wasn't getting paid a ton. Like right. she was definitely earning a living, but not like maybe what you would think. So she also has her mom to support, the Duchess. So her mom, Sadie, opens up a restaurant called Mom Holidays which her daughter basically supports financially. Like she pays for every fucking broken sink. Like she's just throwing money at this restaurant. She said it kept mom busy and happy and stopped her from worrying and watching over me. She begins borrowing even more large amounts of money from holidays to support the money. And holiday always gives her mom this money. She eventually falls on hard times though, because obviously performing is a you know, back and forth. Like sometimes you make zero fucking money. So she said, I needed some money one night and I knew my mom was sure to have some. So I walked in the restaurant like a stockholder and said, and asked, mom turned me down flat. She wouldn't give me a cent. The two of them argued and holiday at some point shouts angrily at her mom. God bless the child that's got his own (laughs) and storms out. Wait, (laughs) is that where the song came from? Oh my God. So she says that it sticks with her. She contacts a pianist named Arthur Herzog, and together they write 
the song God Bless the Child based on that thing that she yelled at her mom. That's <laughs> incredible. Yes. And that obviously becomes one of her most popular uh, records. And the other thing I want to mention is Strange Fruit is not a cover song. Like Billie Holiday basically does that song. Like people are not covering Strange Fruit. God Bless the Child does get covered. Like, so that helps escalate the song, I think, to even a bigger sort of like where everyone knows it. Right. Because many people recorded this song. It becomes um, a huge hit. It reaches number 25 on the charts. It's third on Billboard Songs of the Year, selling over a million records. In 1976, it is added to the Grammy Hall of Fame. I guess they induct songs into that. So it's a big hit too. Now, she meets a lot of famous people at Cafe Society, which is definitely um, one of those venues that all the stars come to when they're in New York. She meets Judy Garland, Bob Hope, and Orson Welles, who she becomes really tight with. What? Yep. Now, (laughs) here's what she says about Orson Welles. After we'd been seen together a few times, I started getting phone calls at my hotel telling me I was ruining Orson's career by being seen with him. People used to bug me saying the studio would get after me and that I'd never work in pictures, and God knows what if I didn't leave him alone. The hotel used to get the same kind of calls from people trying to make trouble for me or for him. A lot of creeps have been dogging Orson Welles ever since, but they can't touch him. He's a fine cat, probably the finest I ever met, and a talented cat. But more than that, he's fine people. So I like hearing Orson Welles is a good guy. (laughs) (laughs) I never would have known they were friends. I know. Uh, So in 1940, she meets a good-looking man named James Monroe, who was described as a sportsman, an impresario, a marijuana dealer, and a pimp. All of these are euphemisms for doing whatever he needed to do to get by. In Billy, he saw a meal ticket. By August of 1941, they were married just as Billy's star and in income was on the rise. Now, James's, James's career was also on the rise. <laughs> he had made some connections with Mexican drug lords to bring marijuana across the border. James was a bad boy, uh, but Billy loved him. In her 1965 autobiography, she cites him as the inspiration for one of her other hit songs. This song is called Don't Explain. Do you know this song? (laughs) In the song, well, what happened is James came home one night and had lipstick on his collar. Uh (laughs) He tries to make an excuse. And Billy once again said, don't take a bath. Don't explain. And that's another lyric in the song. So Billy's just shooting lyrics out of her mouth all the time. She like sends him into the bath. She's like, don't even fucking bother. So don't explain is another one of her hit songs. And that was inspired by Jimmy Monroe. Now he is eventually busted for drug smuggling and Billy blew almost all of her money providing him with the best defense that she could afford. And that ended up with him still serving a year in prison. He eventually gets released and they're pretty much married in name only at this point. Billy is dating tons of people while maintaining this pure sexual image. Like I'm a married woman. Like she can't be caught fucking around, but she does fuck around a ton. Uh, and she fucks around with a ton of, of bad guys. And, I'm going to read a passage from this one guy she's fucking around with, a musician named John Simmons. He claims that she loves it. He says, she was a masochist. She was doing things like to make me fight her. There was a pet shop across the street and I went over and bought a cat of nine tails. I caught her with this whip. I hit her everywhere, but in her face and the bottom of her feet. I say, she won't 
She won't be working tonight. Before I left home, I run a bathtub full of cold water with a box of table salt to close the welts. I just knew she wasn't going to be at work. I took an intermission, went across the street, and there she is in the pin light with this gardenia in her hair covering up the bruises on her face. (laughs) Nothing ever phased her. So she would just like fucking work it out. Like, uh, yeah. So both still... Now, her husband and her still had these holds on each other. Like They were in a codependent relationship. He still needed money. Billy wanted... She did seem to want men to control her because she was in a chaotic state and a chaotic world. So she liked having these daddy... Like She had some... She called him daddy. So she definitely wanted this daddy thing. But obviously, these men were not good men. So it ended up being a bad situation. Uh, he would take basically all her money, but he had one last thing to give her before he left her life. He introduced her to opium in early 1944, which ultimately ended her relationship with Simmons, the guy from a, I, I mentioned earlier. He said, when Billy started, I said, don't do it, baby. I say, you don't know what you're letting yourself in for. Her being adventuresome, she went for it, so I left. Having had it and knowing what it involved, I just didn't want to be around it. Now, Billy had long been an alcohol and reefer lover, but opium was the hip new thing amongst these elite circles that Billy moved in. Like She found it to be very sophisticated. The process of smoking opium was almost ceremonial, and it it sort of like forced you to slow down and take your time and relax. Like they would gather on Saturday nights and they would begin this ritual of like cleaning out the pipe or bowl or whatever it's called, smoking it. And then they would spend hours in this opium haze before possibly starting the ritual again. By the end of World War II, opium became scarce and the mafia who were kind of distributing it, distributing it actually preferred being in the heroin business, which was because it wasn't as heavy as opium, so it made it easier to transport. Billy was one of the many who moved over to heroin once opium started becoming more scarce. Now, the ritual of opium smoking became a thing of the past because it was replaced by this quick release of ejecting heroin directly into your bloodstream. And while Billy's use of heroin was discreet for most of 1944, by 1945, it was an open secret that one of the biggest jazz singers in the country had succumbed to a massive addiction problem. In her biography, she says, my marriage was coming apart and it was during this time that I got hooked, but one had nothing to do with the other really. And Jimmy was no more the cause of my doing what I did than my mother was. That goes for any man I ever knew. I was as strong, if not stronger than any of them. And when it's that way, you can't blame anybody but yourself. And that's where I'll end this week. Wow. (laughs) No wonder you had to do two episodes. (laughs) I mean, I knew I knew this was going to be a long episode, but I can't wait to hear part two. Well, there's a lot in part two. I know. It's like all the other stuff. Well, I know. I mean, yeah. I can only imagine. So uh, I will get to the trial. There's a few of them coming up in the next episode. So I think the movie's coming out this week. I don't see why you can't watch it. And then you'll hear more details probably uh, about it. Um, yeah. But yeah. So that's the first section. Wow. Okay. Well, we will see you all on Friday. Yes. And we'll post pictures. Well, we have a lot of good pictures. We to have post. some great pictures. <laughs> all right. Bye. Bye.